Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Kirill Tatarinov. He's the president and CEO of Citrix. This is Technotopia. This episode of Technotopia is brought to you by Walk2. Walk2 is a new app that gives you deals when you walk to local businesses. Walk2 wants to get you off the couch and walking, so it invites you to walk to a new yoga class, walk to a great sandwich, or walk to happy hour. You can download it at walk2.co. That's W-A-L-K-T-O dot C-O. Walk2. Let's go. Welcome back to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Kirill Tatarinov. Uh, he's president and CEO of Citrix Systems. He has some experience at Microsoft. Uh, he has probably been programming uh, longer than any of us listening. So you're, a, uh, you're pretty experienced here in the, in the, in the arts of uh, the black arts of programming, right? Uh, yeah, I've done quite a bit of programming in my youth, so to speak. <laughs> Say I started my career in uh, in Soviet Union, uh, programming some uh, monsters that are currently probably only in uh, museums. Uh, writing some microcode, reprogramming some microcode at firmware firmware level. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of assembler assembler language. Lots of punch cards where <laughs> uh, you, didn't, you didn't have time to stay in line for a punch card machine and. Uh, you know, gluing in holes in those punch cards to correct your bugs and things like that. So yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It's amazing how our industry evolved in just a short span on of thirty uh, some odd uh, odd years. Mm-hmm. I think there were, you you told me an interesting story about how uh, how a program that you used you you wrote has been is still it was it was still in use like years later. Yeah, we're still in use years later. Uh, it's um, you know I worked for I've not been I, I graduated from uh, from school in Moscow that specialized in uh, engineers for um, for for railway industry actually. Mm-hmm. It's a very large university, about uh, forty thousand students. Uh, I got married in my senior year, and one benefit of being married in the senior year, you actually got to do uh, two diplomas, one yourself and one for your wife. Okay. And, uh, my wife's my wife's diploma was actually in uh, in systems programming, and uh, I ended up writing the log analyzer for a clone of System 370. Mm-hmm. You know, Soviet Union was just cloning computers back then; they weren't building their own. So it was log analyzer for System 370 written in PL1, and uh, it's. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a good piece of code. I was quite proud of it. And then uh, I think ten or fifteen years later, when I uh, returned to uh, what was Russia already uh, and visited my old uh, alma mater. The guy who ran IT, who was actually my classmate, told me that uh, that piece of code was still there and used <laughs> still running it to analyze codes. That's pretty wild. So, <laughs> yeah, you've seen you've seen a lot of things come and go. You've seen a lot of uh, you've seen a lot of cool software come and go. Where is where is the general purpose computer going? Uh, am I going to have a desktop later? Am I going to am I going to be connecting via Citrix? Am I going to be am I going to have just a mobile device that does all this for me? Well, I think the broad range of form factors uh, will be used, and uh, you know, in the world of technology, you hate using word forever, but uh, you know, let's let's use a large desktop form factor. 
there's about a billion of them around the world, and there's a very specific use case for those for those large form factors. And I think you know, five years out, it's probably going to be more than a billion of them in use today. You know, in places where large screens and in places where huge quantities of information need to be examined. Of course, they're going to change. They're going to morph. They're going to continue to get more powerful. Some use cases will call for virtual client computing, where the actual computation will happen remotely. And uh, without a doubt, Citrix uh, virtualization will power those remote use cases. Uh, others will uh, will will run will run will run locally, and uh, I think it will be with us. But I think the um, uh, 3D visualization will be coming into um, those uh, those machines. I think some announcements that Microsoft uh, made uh, last fall, where you know they clearly emphasized 3D is the next big frontier for where they they're innovating. I think I think I think it's going to be it's going to be here. You know, we we live in a three-dimensional world, and I mm -hmm. think computation and I think visualization in particular need to become um, uh, need to become more uh, three-dimensional. And I think holographic computing will come into play, and we're going to see more of that in the uh, in the coming year. And I think it's uh, I think it's incredibly exciting. We're going to be able to see more of a real world in front of us. What do you think about quantum computing? When do you think that's going to be uh, like commonly available? Well, it's 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 certainly taking more time than uh, than many of us many of us expected, and uh, it's it's developing slowly. It's um, I think it's a it's an artifact of of fewer people actually entering the field of STEM and and, and fewer people than the world needs hmm. are actually capable of of working of working in this field. Uh, so I would say you know, three, five years at least before we can start seeing any any shift in that in, in that area. Do you know of anybody who's actively using uh, quantum computing for other than like I guess code breaking and also the great crazy stuff? Uh, not amongst the enterprises that uh, that I deal with on a daily basis. It's it certainly sort of from from what I see, it's not yet entered entered mainstream. Mm -hmm. I think there I think there's some some use cases in um, in financial financial sector in financial industry where they really need you know high power computational power and they need some unique really unique machines. Uh, I heard some of that there, but but that's about it. So is that is are we coming back to the era when you build a machine for one single purpose, or are we going to be able to be, use these things uh, generally? I think I think the world of uh, of general purpose computing, and uh, I think sort of the continuous uh, race between you know price performance uh, will be uh, will be upon us, and I mm -hmm. think that race will call for general purpose computing or industry standard computing against you know something that is that is custom tailored but it again it's a race and uh, i think i think it's it kind of race where it starts with a purpose-built machine for solving a particular highly unique highly complex problem and that unique uh, piece of hardware leaves for a period of time and then general purpose catches up mm -hmm. And there are many, many different analogies. You know, look, looking looking back at you know, think of even even in the networking domain. Uh, first, Citrix built Netscaler ADC, which is super clever purpose-built appliance for application load balancing on the network. If you think about really tough problem to solve, really requires super fast 
uh, you know, computation at the uh, at the protocol level, networking layers four to seven, really unique. Well, fast forward ten years today, it is all done in software, mm -hmm. and it can run on just generic virtual machine or generic bare metal server, but it can all also run in the cloud. Okay. And that's just an example of the phrase that started as a something that was purpose built. Now it is completely generic. So you've seen you've seen the the history of computing from the beginning to to today. What are some things that we are looking at today that we're going to be, I don't know, embarrassed about? Uh, I feel like there's I feel like we look back on a on a on an old vax machine and we're like, oh, that's pretty that was pretty primitive back in the in the old days, and, and we. We're learning. We learned so much between those days and today. What is what is the thing that we're going to be embarrassed about about uh, about technology, or what's going to change the most drastically between now and maybe next twenty years? Well, I think the discipline of building high quality code will continue to will continue to emerge, and I think the dream of essentially receiving computing as a dial tone is still, for the most part, not here. Mm -hmm. uh, we still have way too many outages, and uh, we still have really poor defenses in uh, in cybersecurity. And I think these are these are the things that we're going to be we're going to be embarrassed about. And guess what? Those holes and uh, those uh, vulnerabilities they're all caused by poor quality code. Okay. So is, can can robots write code for us? Uh, well. There, there are some primitive abstracts that can be created by itself, mm -hmm. and uh, there, there's certainly, uh, you know, the uh, the art of engineering and the art of imagining fascinating things that computing can do for us will certainly remain to be the domain of human beings, but the labor of creating rock-solid, unpenetrable code to implement those fascinating constructs, it's probably been done by a machine. Mm -hmm. So you see, you see a time when I'm going to tell the computer I need a, I need the computer to go through a massive amount of data and give me some sort of uh, analysis of that. And and I would I would say I I know what that analysis is, but I don't know exactly how to do it, and the computer does it for me, right? That's so, well, that's pretty, that, we're pretty much there now. Yeah. Not 100%, but there are use cases where you pretty much can do it. And, I mean, just just fascinating amount of code has been written in the last 30 years, and some of it is pretty darn good, and it's, it exists in form of library or, or building blocks. And I think the biggest difference between programming 30-plus years ago and programming now, in many cases, we have to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, before, before building an automobile, we'd have to... Uh, design a wheel and put it together and <laughs> start building a car using that analogy. Today, it's, it's, just, it's just putting the blocks together. Okay. And, and that's what makes it so fascinating. And I'm certainly very envious to the new generation of uh, uh, computer scientists who have so much at their disposal. <laughs> I bet you somebody would let you program if you, if you asked them. <laughs> I, feel, I, feel like you miss your, I feel like you miss your punch cards. So, I don't miss my I don't miss my punch cards. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> so could could we ever get to a point um, using all the tools at our disposal? Could we ever get to the point where we could we could do a Turing test where we create a mechanical Turk request 
and the system understands the Mechanical Turk request. Because, I mean, you, you've seen Mechanical Turk. That's the uh, the Amazon's uh, basically human, human-powered human system, right? So you ask it to go through 50 websites, and it finds the, the phone numbers for all of those. Yep. At what point is it going to be cost-effective or fast enough for a computer to do the, the, the fairly complex things that we require Mechanical Turk stuff to do? Because I guess that's that's almost a that's almost a Turing test, really. I think it is, and it, it, I think I think we're rapidly approaching that. To be mm-hmm. to be to be honest with you, and and I think we're, you know, I think within within five years we'll probably get to a point where, uh, thank to analytics and thank to supervised machine machine learning and and. And thanks to advances in AI and advances at real at real scale uh, between massive platforms like you know Amazon, Google, Microsoft, uh, that that is going to become available. And I think cost effectiveness of that will will come with scale. Okay. So when so when when let's let's do a, let's do a over under like five years, ten years, four. Five years. Five, five years. years. All right. Interesting. So the. What does the world look like in 20 years? Uh, what is what do you see happening? Um, maybe not in your industry specifically, but you've st- but just in technology in general. Well, I think I think so. First of all, we're going to see massive introduction of technologies that we already see uh, at scale in place. Mm-hmm. We, we touched upon 3D visualization. I think it'll be it'll be a norm. And I think it'll be a norm interacting with, uh, you know, 3D avatars or 3D holograms uh, of people when you're interacting with people. I think that that virtual presence will absolutely, truly become become a reality. And I think it will be it'll be a norm. It'll be a norm for um, for interacting. I think uh, there, you know, the interaction with computers will continue to be simplified because I think if you um, if you think about so the slow progress in early days of computing in the uh, 70s and 80s uh, the root cause of that was enormously complex user interface and enormously complex human computer interaction model that in many cases required writing code mm-hmm. or typing complex commands and how much it simplified and how much it accelerated uh, in the last 10 years, uh, thanks to, uh, you know, Apple innovation in, in user experience, I would say probably first and foremost, I think they helped the industry made dramatic breakthrough in simplifying interaction between, um, between, between the computers and, and, uh, and humans. And I think more of that will continue. Voice will certainly come into a picture and, uh, that will continue to, uh, that will continue to expand and that will continue, uh, continue to develop. Uh, I also hope and uh, I, I want to believe that computing will uh, will finally uh, make an impact in an enormous digital divide that exists on the planet. I mean, most of us conveniently forget that approximately 15% of world population today are simply illiterate. Mm-hmm. Forget access to computing or internet or any of that. You know, 14% of world population are people who uh, who cannot read and write. And uh, I certainly hope that continuous simplification and that continuous advancement and, and cost benefit 
will enable to the world in its entirety to be to be a better place and the digital divide to be uh, to be compressed much more do if i'm learning to read am i reading am i literally learning to read of the via the computer or is the computer reading for me it, am i, I being think, am i being augmented by this by the technology or am i being educated by the technology i i think i think you're being educated by the technology okay. but I, but but i think you know just like just like some uh economists that we're seeing in sub-saharan africa that jump to completely new models of banking for example through the phone without even going through normal normal mm -hmm. standard banking system evolution that we've seen that we've seen in in western europe or other developed countries uh, i think something similar is going is going to happen where computers may enter in places where where books didn't exist yep. yeah that's that's an interesting point i, I could imagine a I can imagine a uh, glasses system that allows that reads to me. Uh, so I'm reading Russian; it'll translate it for me on the fly. And I'm and basically we're augmenting our own internal reading system. Uh, we instead of instead of reading in our head, we basically just hear it in our head, which is going to be interesting. But I guess that, that, that yeah, yeah. And, and and look yet yet again, uh, this is these are not exactly far-fetched concepts. Mm -hmm. If you at, if you look at Skype, the tool that we're using now to uh, to to interact, it already supports built-in translation. Mm -hmm. So you and I could be chatting different languages and uh, and seeing seeing text translated in front of our eyes. And and so just you know taking it to the next level and making it available to everybody, it's not that big of a leap. Okay. What does uh, what does work look like in twenty years? Where where are the where are the jobs going? Are we still going to have truck drivers? Are we still going to have uh, programmers? Uh, I, I think I think we're still going to have truck drivers, and uh, I think we're going to have uh, I think we're going to have programmers. Uh, I think we're going to have uh, programmers doing different tasks. I, I think programmers uh, become more imaginative, and I think yet again the the uh, the uh, laborious writing of code and debugging code for the most part will be. Uh, Will be done by a machine, mm -hmm. which is which is which is logical to expect. But imagining and uh, creating sort of amazing amazing things will be will be domain of human. And I think computer computer science as a discipline will uh, will move to high level uh, to high level concepts. You know, truck driver and uh, whether whether self driving cars become become reality. Um, you know, my point of view is. Self-driving cars can only get to mainstream when the only thing you have on the road is self-driving cars, mm -hmm. and uh, you know <laughs> you, you're going to need to remove uh, human creativity from the roads to make self-driving cars success. <laughs> human creativity from the road. <laughs> I guess uh, I guess you could call it creative. Uh... I mean, you can call it you, you, you can call it many things, but mm -hmm. but machines cannot possibly anticipate what a human can do yep. when um, when human is behind the wheels and so i think i, I think i think we will have we will have roads uh probably as early as five years from now and there mm -hmm. will be probably sections of interstate that are that are devoted to self-driving cars and uh, trucks in particular and um and um and i think it'll be uh, i think it's certainly going to be uh, tremendous for the uh, for the society all right, so you're so you're still betting on humans to uh, to make it past the 
past the past the next decade. I think so. All right, good. So you're so you're giving us a chance. Uh, absolutely. All right, Carol. Where can people find out uh, what you're working on? Well, we're working on lots of interesting things, and um, we um, actually think of it as we work on um, future of work, mm-hmm. and we're, we're thinking and imagining what the work workplace of the future is going to be. And I think the workplace of the future is certainly much more flexible, giving people ability to um, connect security, securely and access all the information they need securely and uh, really have a ability to have conditional access to the information that they allow to access from wherever they may be, interact with their co-workers and, um, and, stay, and stay productive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I think we're, we're rapidly, especially in white-collar professions, we're, we're rapidly moving to, uh, to a world where you know, it's not really about work-life balance, it's about work-life integration. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're living in a much more interrupt-driven environment and we're, li- we're living in much more uh, sort of, I would say, small digits of interaction. And uh, we continuously move from personal family interaction to work interaction and during the day we can we can be in a situation where we interchange multiple times mm-hmm. and for that and for that you need to have incredibly flexible yet incredibly secure uh, environment to get it done and that's that's precisely the place where uh, Citrix is focused on you know helping helping people organizations and things be securely securely connected and easily accessible in any know, context they, interesting yeah. All right. So thank you very much for joining us on Technotopia. Uh, this is a this is a great this is a great look down the down memory lane into the future. So thank you, Carol. I appreciate it, John. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This has been Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. We will see you next week. 